Well, this morning we have the privilege to once again have Dr. Harry Shields with us uh, to teach. And, you know, I've only, I've only been at Parkview for uh, a few months or so, uh, but last week, to me, felt uniquely powerful here, if you were here. Uh, again, I'm, I'm relatively new, and I know that every week is a good week, uh, but last week it just felt uniquely different, uniquely powerful. As, as Dr. Shields shared from Scripture, and he, as he was vulnerable with his own life of how this scripture touched his life, and we looked around as we talked with people in the lobby, as we interacted with people throughout the week, it was clear that God did something with those words and that message. We heard a lot of phrases like, that's exactly what I needed to hear that morning. Uh, God needed to teach me that. I needed to come to grips with that truth. Uh, and we were incredibly grateful that God used Dr. Shields last week uh, to do that in the life of our church. And so this week, I'm confident that God will continue to use Dr. Shields, that the Holy Spirit will work through him and his preparation and his opening of the word uh, to teach us this morning. So if you would, please welcome Dr. Shields this morning. Thank you, Andy. Well, thank you so very, very much for your kindness. Thank you, Andy, for those uh, very kind words. I do believe that God wants to speak to us, and He wants to speak to us through His Word. So would you find your way to Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 2. Turn there in your copy of the Scriptures, your electronic devices, and uh, Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read the first nine verses. You'll also see uh, this same section on the screen behind me, and so I trust that you will follow along. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him that he had what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream... There's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Well, this is God's Word. He wants us to hear it, to receive it, and to be prepared to apply it for as long as He gives us life. We don't know one another that well, but my guess is that there are people in this congregation this morning who are planners. What I mean by that is maybe this weekend already, early this morning, 
you took your phone, your uh, special device, and you started to look over your calendar. Maybe already today you have set up appointments for the week. Maybe you're planning to do certain things, and so you've planned out how everything is there on that planner. Or maybe uh, some of you have already planned your vacation for the summer. Uh, You know what you're going to do in uh, the spring or in the summer ahead of you. Some of you may have already started to plan for your retirement. Seems far away into the future, but you've made those plans. Now, here's the thing about planning. We can make our plans, we can write them down, record them in a special device, but we have no control over the future. We really do not know what is up ahead. For example, we don't know what's going to happen in the economy. We listen to the news, one week the economy seems to be up, uh, the job rate looks good, and then the next week or the next season it seems to be down again. It seems very confusing when we look at economic cycles. Or, or for example, when we look at international relations. It, it seems as though there is conflict everywhere. Some of us have never been to the Middle East or the Balkans or to Europe, and yet we know that civil conflict in any of those places could impact us. It could impact our children or our grandchildren. And then the political scene, <laughs> very confusing. Uh, One week we think, well, yeah, this is the candidate I'm going to vote for. And then uh, there's a debate and we begin, no, I don't like that person so well, so I'm going to vote for someone else. The political scene is confusing. We really do not know what is going to happen in the future. When we step away from our busyness, not knowing the future can make us anxious, worried, fearful. What do we do in those situations? Throughout the history of God's people, specifically the church, God speaks to His people through His Word. And I'm coming to you this morning to suggest to you that God wants to say something about our futures, especially as it is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 2. If you listen to me long enough and if you've followed me a few times that I've been here, you'll know that I want to do something as we go to this passage of Scripture this morning. Here's what we're going to do. I'd like to take some time and look at this text in Daniel chapter 2. For some of you, it's very familiar. You might even say it's one of the great prophetic texts in in all of Scripture. That, That would be true. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle this morning. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to take a look at the text to see what the writer is doing. On the other side of that, we're going to discover a very important truth, and then we're going to say to ourselves, what do we take away from this truth with respect to our own lives? That's where we're headed. In fact, everything you hear this morning, you can hang your thoughts on those three things. What's happening in the text? What does this text give us in terms of a truth? And then what do we take away from that truth in terms of the rest of our lives? So so let's look at this text. In this text this morning, I want us to look at four scenes, four ways in which the writer begins to unfold certain events. I can suggest to you it is progressive. In fact, it starts out and there's some trouble, there's some tension. It ultimately leads up to the resolution of that tension. In fact, that's the way narrative literature works for us. It starts with a tension and then the tension is ultimately resolved. In this story this morning, we discover that there is an emperor 
and that emperor has had a dream. That may not mean much to you. In fact, any dreams you have, you might dismiss those dreams. That's not the way it was in the ancient world. Dreams were important because any time people in the ancient world, especially emperors, had a dream, they assumed that the gods were speaking to them. They couldn't always figure it out, and so they would have people come and and tell them what those dreams meant. That's what we see happening in this story. Now, uh, in these scenes that I mentioned to you, uh, these four scenes, we're going to look at a scene we're going to call the first one conflict. Uh, The second one, uh, we're going to call consecration. Then we're going to look at a third scene, and we're going to call that one consideration. And the final one is simply conclusion. That's where we're going to go. That's the four scenes. Here's the first one. In this first scene of conflict, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. Now, the custom was, as I just told you, in in the uh, ancient world, when they had a dream, there was a certain protocol that was followed. The common man... Uh, the dream would come to an individual and they would go to someone in the community, usually called an astrologer or a sorcerer or a magician. They were supposed to be very educated people. They would come to them and say, here is my dream. I'll pay you some money. Tell me what it means. And they would get an interpretation according to the price of the day uh, for those interpretations. In this situation, the king kind of turns everything upside down. He has a dream. He calls the people of his court, the astrologers and magicians especially, and he said, I've had a dream. I want you to tell me what was in this dream, and then you can tell me the interpretation. And they say to him in so many words, "Uh, your majesty, doesn't work that way. (laughs) In fact, no one has the ability to do that. You have to tell us the dream first of all. King says that, no, it's not going to work that way. I I want you to tell me what was in my mind. What was the dream? Then you can interpret it, and I'll believe you. If you don't do it, I'm going to turn your houses into rubble. I'll cut off your heads. No pressure, but I just want you to know this, this is what's going to happen if you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, notice in verse 10 what happens. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Did you hear? There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. And the king says, that's the way it is. So there's this great conflict that is brewing. And so all of these people have been brought into the king's court. They've been threatened with death if no one can come up with the interpretation or with the dream and its interpretation. So that's the first scene. It's a scene of conflict. Now, that scene uh, leads into the second one that I'm calling consecration. There might be a better word, but but here's what I mean whenever I use the term consecration. Consecration has the idea where, where someone comes and they realize, hey, we are in a dilemma here. So what I'm going to do I'm going to call upon God, and I'm going to give Him everything that I am, and I'm going to cry out to Him, assuming that perhaps He might respond to my need and to my prayer request. And that's exactly what is happening in this second scene. The second scene begins around about verse 14 and goes all the way through verse 23. Now, that's what's happening. 
The person who is the key figure in this second scene is this man, Daniel. You'll remember from last week that what happened is that Daniel and several other people from the royal family in Judah have been captured by Nebuchadnezzar and his forces, and they have been taken back to Babylon. They are going to be exiles in Babylon. Things look bad. And you may remember that I pointed out last week that in those bad situations, we learn that God places people like Daniel people like you, people like me. He puts, those, puts us in those troubling situations, and those uh, troubling situations become a platform in which we can be the spokespersons for the living God. And, and so Daniel's coming to understand. Here is a situation in which he's standing on a platform, a crisis, a conflict, and God is going to begin to speak through him. Now, uh, they don't know what's going to happen, but I want you to notice what Daniel di- does beginning in verse 17. Here's what the narrator writes. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them, here's where the consecration comes in, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So apparently, they start to pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they keep on praying. We get the impression that perhaps they are praying through the night. What does that kind of consecration get you? Well, look at verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. The story is going to begin to unfold. We're going to learn what that dream was. But it's given to Daniel. He realizes it's been given to him. His consecration has paid off. So there's conflict. Conflict is followed by consecration. It leads to the third scene. I'm calling it consideration. Basically, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing at this point, he's going to be going before the king, and he's going to be saying, uh, Your Majesty, I want you to consider some things. I want you to consider the interpretation, or the dream, rather. I think this is what it is. And then here's the interpretation. Would you consider this interpretation? So this is a very long scene. It begins in verse 24, goes all the way through verse 45. I just want you to notice some highlights as to, to what happens in this passage. Look at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret this dream for him. Verse 25, Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And sure enough, he's he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar does a little bit of an inquiry, an investigation, asks Daniel if he can do that. And Daniel begins to explain some things. We'll come back and look at that in just a moment. But here's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. He says, in your dream, you saw a statue. It was a majestic statue. The statue was made out of different metals. Now, I'll pause for just a moment and explain that. In the ancient world, emperors, one of the things that they would do, they would establish their kingdom, and then they would choose a medal, a certain kind of a medal, and say, this is the symbol for our kingdom. The more valuable the medal, they would assume the, the stronger this kingdom was, the more majestic this kingdom might be. 
And so right away, Nebuchadnezzar, in his dream, he's assuming, hey, there's something here. This represents something related to kingdoms. So Daniel begins to uh, unfold what the dream was all about. He said, you saw this great statue. The head was made of gold. And then uh, from there down, from about the shoulders down through, through the waist, uh, there was silver. And then uh, the silver begins to move into bronze from the legs down. And then uh, that bronze turns into iron. In fact, the feet are iron mixed with clay. Ah, he's, he's seen the interpretation or the dream, rather. Then would you notice around about verse 36, this is what Daniel says. He asked him to consider, is this the dream? Now he's asking him to consider the interpretation. Verse 36 says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. And then he goes on to say, after you, your kingdom is going to pass away. Then there's going to be another kingdom. A kingdom uh, represented by silver. Uh, it's also going to have some glory and majesty. That kingdom is going to pass away. And then there's a kingdom uh, of bronze. That kingdom is going to pass away. And then there's going to be this mixed kingdom, uh, having iron, it's strong, but it's also going to have feet, iron mixed of clay. And basically, Daniel says, what's, what's going to happen? Uh, it, it's going to crumble. In fact, all of these kingdoms are going to come, uh, tr- uh, uh, crumble within time. Throughout history, there have been a couple different interpretations of uh, what these kingdoms mean. There's the Greek view, and the Greek view says, well, uh, the kingdoms are this. There is Babylon, that, that's the kingdom represented by gold. Uh, then there is the kingdom of Media. Then, then there's the, the kingdom of Persia, and then there's the Greek kingdom. It's called the Greek view. Then there's the Roman view, perhaps the most uh, dominant uh, view of all. It's the idea that we have Babylon, the kingdom uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, made out of gold, uh, followed by the kingdom of Media Persia or Medo-Persia. And then after that is the, the kingdom of Greece, and that's followed by the kingdom of Rome. Now, we can debate what those things uh, mean, but God doesn't want us to engage in debate about things. He's really pointing out something else. Would you notice in this storyline what happens is that all of these kings seem to pass away. In fact, Daniel seems to be emphasizing something. There is both a digression as well as a progression. Here's what I mean by that. There is a digression in power. All of these kings start out, uh, kingdoms start out. They're very, very powerful, and then they pass away. There is also a digression in terms of quality. Starts off with gold, and then uh, the metal seems to get weaker and weaker as time goes by. And then in this dream, and we haven't pointed this out yet, what Nebuchadnezzar saw, he saw that there is a stone, stone taken out of a mountain, and this stone comes, and it crushes all of those kingdoms, and then that stone begins to grow. Notice what Daniel says about that stone, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. A kingdom that will never be destroyed, never left to anyone else. He's talking about God's kingdom. And he's saying in the future, one day, this God, this God that the Babylonians thought they had conquered, the God of Israel, 
His kingdom is going to be established, and it will never, never, never be destroyed. So we have digression of these kingdoms, and then it ultimately progresses into the ultimate kingdom of God. This storyline starts out with conflict, followed by consecration. Consecration is, is followed by consideration. And then would you notice there is a conclusion. The conclusion starts in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and said to him, uh, uh, excuse me, and uh, paid him honor and ordered that an offering, an incense, be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the king uh, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then Nebuchadnezzar uh, gives Daniel great honor, uh, giving him a position of great prestige uh, in the province of Babylon. In fact, Daniel says, Well, how about my three friends? And Nebuchadnezzar gives them authority and position as well. That's how the story uh, closes. Uh, in this situation, I think it's important to point out that Nebuchadnezzar uh, brings some things, some, some offerings to Daniel, almost as if we sometimes think, well, maybe Daniel is being perceived as a god. That's not what's happening. What Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he's basically saying, listen, you're God, <laughs> in the midst of this great conflict that is going together between the gods of Babylon and the God of Israel. Your God is the God of gods. Give him this offering. That's what he's saying to Daniel. Offer it up on my behalf. You see, nowhere in the book of Daniel do we ever have convincing evidence that Nebuchadnezzar has ever become a Yahweh follower. So what are we to make out of all of this? We looked at the text. What is the truth? that God wants us to hear in this passage of Scripture this morning. If you remember nothing else, I hope you'll remember this. Maybe even write it down if necessary. Here it is. The future is frightening. The future is scary. The future doesn't really make much sense to us. But God is the revealer and the ruler of the future. He is the revealer and the ruler of history. God says, history's going somewhere. I know that. I'm in charge of it. God knows what the future is all about. He knows the future of kingdoms, and He knows your future as well. All right, that's the point of the passage from my perspective. So what are we to make of all of this? What do we take away from this principle into our own lives? Allow me to suggest three responses that we might make, and, and I'll try to make those as quickly as I can. Here's the first one. If it is true, and it is, that God is the ruler, the revealer of history, where history is headed, that God is ultimately going to reign, uh, uh, what do we do? The first thing that we need to do we need to seek to know this God, and we seek to know His plans as well, what, what it's all about. I want you to notice what else happened in this passage. If you go back to the beginning of the story, would you notice that Nebuchadnezzar has kind of a default mechanism in the midst of his problem? Here's why I say this, verse 2. So the king summoned, he summoned, notice who he summoned, the magicians enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. You might look at that and say, that, that's ridiculous. 
so pagan, so, so ignorant. No, it was his default mechanism because these individuals, in spite of what you think about their titles, were the most intelligent individuals of that day and time. Nebuchadnezzar does what any of us would do. He defaults to the people who are educated, the people who are skilled, the people who may be successful in their trades or in their professions, and he calls upon them. How different from what Daniel does. Drop down to verse 17 again. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends. Verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. He urged them to plead for mercy. In other words, he turns to God. He seeks out God. God, what is your will? What is your way in this this whole process? Daniel is a God seeker. He wants to know him more than anything else. There's a second thing that you and I must do. Not only do we begin to seek God, to know Him, to know His plan, somewhere along the line, we need to communicate who God is, His character, and His plan to other people. We need to communicate it. Let me add one other thing. We need to communicate who God is and His plan when the time is appropriate. (laughs) You see, some of us can stand on our soapbox and We can begin to spout certain prophetic ideas to other people, and they will yawn and kind of walk away. Is there ever a time when it's appropriate to do that? And the answer is yes. When people are in a crisis situation, when people are hurting, when their hearts are ready to hear. Notice what happens in verse 24 again. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, ready to execute them, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret this dream for him. So Daniel is ready to communicate because he knows the situation is right. Nebuchadnezzar is frustrated. He's worried because he knows this dream has something about the future. And Daniel's concerned about the wise people of Babylon as well, and he wants to reach out to them. So he's ready to communicate in the context when people are hurting and they are ready to hear. That's what we need to do as well. Let me point out one other thing about this whole process of communicating who God is. Look at verses 27 and 28. Daniel replied to the king, "'No wise man enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Human beings do not have that ability is what Daniel is saying. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. You see what Daniel's doing? He's turning everything back to God not to his knowledge, not to his ability, not to his skills. He's communicating what God's plan is in the midst of a hurting situation, a problem circumstance, and now he's pointing everything back to God. He's saying God is the one who will give answers to our lives. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised that Daniel might have even told about how God had revealed this to him, how God had been significant in his own life, how God had given Daniel a platform. In fact, we're going to see that happening throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. See, the future, it can be frightening. It can be fearful. But God is the revealer and the ruler of the future. 
That leads to one other thing. Not only do we need to be seekers of God, knowing His character, knowing His ways, knowing His plans, and then we communicate in appropriate context who God is and and what He's going to do in history. The third thing that we need to do is we need to surrender. Let me say that another way. We need to surrender our agenda for God's agenda. I want you to notice a contrast here again. If you were to go back to verses uh, 17 through 23, you would see that Daniel is calling out for God. God, uh, give some insight. Basically what he's doing, he's turning his life over to God to do whatever God wants to do. And then beginning the second part of verse 19, he begins to offer up praise to God because he realizes that God has made this information known. No amount of skill, no amount of education has done it. God has revealed this wisdom to him. And so he offers up praise to God. His life is surrendered to the God of Israel. That's very different from what we see happening in verses 46 through 49. I mentioned to you a few moments ago, there is no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar ever became a follower of Yahweh of Israel. He says, oh, yeah, take these offerings back to your God. But there's no evidence that he ever bows down, that he ever surrenders his life to the living God. And therein is a lesson for us. We can choose to to go our own way, or we can uh, choose to seek after God to surrender everything that we are, every plan that we have, every hope that we have, giving it to God to work in and through us. The name Johnny Erickson Tata is probably well known to many of you. Somewhere around about the age of 14 or 15, uh, she uttered a prayer to God. And her prayer was, um, God, I go to church on Sunday, and uh, then I get to Friday night and Saturday night, and, and I just live certain ways. I'm making a mess out of my life. She prayed, God, would you do something to get me out of these messes? A few days later, Johnny Erickson Tata was involved in a diving accident, ended up being a quadriplegic. Sometime during her recovery, she uh, spoke to God again, and she said, this is the last time I'm ever giving my prayers to you. And her life started to spiral into despair. After talking with uh, some other believers, uh, the Spirit of God was speaking to her. And so she turned to God again in prayer, and this is what she said. God, you won't take my life from me, so teach me how to live. That's a prayer of a person surrendered to God. Some of you this morning, you're living in despair, and sometimes you cry out, God, why don't you just take me home, or why don't you just take me away, or why is this happening? What God is saying to all of us, God, teach me how to live. Some of you already know that the way to live is through a life of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, coming under His rule and reign in your life. But there might be somebody here this morning 
who's been coming to this church, or maybe you're coming for the first time, and you've never come to that point where you've realized that, like me, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And this church wants to communicate to you that Jesus is the only Savior, the only Lord, the only God who can turn your life around. But it's a matter of coming and surrendering your ways to His ways. After all, He is the revealer and ruler of all of life. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we ask that You might take this truth and apply it to our lives. Father, I I pray for some of us who uh, know Jesus as Lord and Savior and teach us again how to live, how to surrender our lives to You. Guide us through our own lives so that we might enter into Your future with great joy and great hope. But then, Father, there's someone here today who has not yet entrusted their eternal destiny to You. Open their eyes, Holy Spirit, to see their need for a Savior and give them the faith to trust You. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, we do take time this morning to remember and to remember your grace that was given to us through your Son, your goodness, your faithfulness to us. God, we are deeply grateful for you, for your pursuit of us, for your willingness to forgive, and your generosity as you gave your Son. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.